Matt Myers, alcoholic. <laughs> Made it to the big time, Mom. <laughs> I wanted to uh, do a little housekeeping first. I want to thank the board for allowing me to uh, chair this meeting. It's always an honor and a privilege to chair any Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, but especially this one. It's, uh, Bob's a big deal, at least in my mind. And there's one other thing I want to get cleared up. Lonnie, the boat keeps telling me that there's rules up here. There's night rules for me, is there? I didn't think so. <laughs> I don't know what he was thinking. <laughs> Let's open this meeting with a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I've asked uh, Bruce Mingus to uh, read the steps. Uh, this is one of some of Bob's finest work here. He's been working on reading these steps. Uh, Karen's been working with him, so we might get some. <laughs> Only you get to come to Rough River to get this kind of abuse, but I love it. I keep coming back. <laughs> My name is Bruce Mingus. I am alcoholic. It's good to be here, and it's good to be sober. And these are the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Number one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. You did good, Karen. Before I get Bob up here, I need to mention a few things. You know, he has <coughs> the uh, unlucky draw to go first, which, which means she's going to have a rebuttal tomorrow. So I want to point out that she was crazy all the time. He was only drunk some of the time. <laughs> if he could stay drunk, or if I could have stayed drunk all the time, you'd have two different people here tonight. But we, you just can't do it. So you may want to keep some notes, what Bob says, and see if they match up with Juanita tomorrow. Because she, well, she lies. <laughs> <laughs> And now she's threatening me. <laughs> it's all in fun, Juanita. <laughs> anyway, I, I've known Bob for 50 roundups. Uh, he was a delight to be around the first time and every time. And every time I leave Bob, I, I feel better. I feel more spiritual. Uh, 
it's you really can't talk about Bob without Juan either because they're they're just the pair that keeps on giving. And um, uh, you know how Bob does this, how how he's such an attraction is it's it's very simple. It's nothing he planned to do, but it's when he implemented those twelve steps and those twelve traditions into his life on a daily basis and repetitive. You're rendered like Bob. People want to be around you. It's nothing he set out to do, but that is the byproduct of the, our <coughs> repetitious program. So, um, one other thing, uh, uh, Bob and Juanita, they travel around. They're, they're both ambassadors of AA and Al-Anon. They're just out, outstanding people and just great to know. Did I get that right, Bob? Okay. <laughs> so I'm not going to take up any more of Bob's time. We're going to let him go up here. Uh, wait a minute. Maybe, maybe he'll tell us about one of his fishing stories in Mexico when he's down in the bowels of Mexico try, hunting for food for his family table. Or uh, maybe we'll get a, a little story about the labor pains of the Rough River Roundup. Or about how it is to live with a Juanita. <laughs> Here's Bob. And he, he knows her better than I do, and he's taking my seat now. <laughs> my name's Bob Wessel, and I'm an alcoholic. It's good to be here. It's good to be sober tonight. Uh, I'm a member of the Crumbs Lane group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Louisville. We meet on Wednesday night. Crumbs Lane group at 8 o'clock. If you're ever in Louisville and you want to go to the meeting, give me a call. Uh, our sobriety date is 9th of November, 1962. And before you start figuring, that's uh, 50 years in one day. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I've been a part of the Rough River Roundup ever since it started in. Uh, I, I didn't want to do this tonight. Uh, we normally do not have our board, uh, every board member speak, and uh, but the uh, board uh, board members voted, and uh, they voted nine to two to, to have one in and I speak. Uh, <laughs> and, and you know, God almost stepped in on on this thing, and uh, uh, we're fortunate to be here tonight. Uh, Juanita broke her wrist Tuesday. Uh, I told her about that drinking, but she wouldn't listen to me. But, uh, no, she fell, and we, we took her to the emergency room Tuesday, and uh, they, they couldn't set the arm, and it sent her back home. So I called Pat and told him I didn't know what, whether we was going to be here or not, really. And uh, uh, Thursday, uh, Bill and uh, Kay come in from, from their hometown, and I had to pick them up at the airport, and I brought them down, and my daughter took Juanita back to the, the hospital, because uh, they wanted to see her again, and uh, we didn't know if it's going to do surgery or not, so I really didn't know if it was going to be here. But uh, after I brought uh, Bill and them down, I went on back to, to see what was going on with Juanita, and uh, she was very tired. I said, what do you think we ought to do? What do you want to do? You know what she said to me? 
Bob, we made a commitment. You know, that, that's the program of Al-Anon in action. So we got, we got packed and come on down, and, and it is good to be here. Uh, I want to tell you, before I get into my story, I want to tell you a little bit about Rough River. Uh, back in all early, probably 1975 or so, Wani was involved in a thing called Father Fowl's Retreats. And uh, they had some retreats at Bellarmine College and various places. And, and at that time, we got to thinking about a, a roundup, but uh, there wasn't any place to have it. And for many years, we traveled to uh, now and on roundup down in Alabama, 400 miles down there to a roundup called Sumatonga Roundup. And uh, we would travel down there twice a year for, oh, some 30 years. And uh, then we got the idea, Juanita did, I didn't, we got the, Juanita got the idea that we ought to try and have a roundup around here. And, and we started looking around. We went to Bellarmine College. That wasn't a good place. We went to General Butler State Park, and we didn't feel those facilities were good. And then we heard about a, a young couple that had a Christian home down around Litchfield. And this couple we went to school with, so Juanita and I went down there to see them. And uh, the facilities were real nice. Uh, the only problem with it, uh, the uh, plumbing facilities were all outdoors. But they were modern as they could be. And uh, uh, we, d we decided that that wasn't good. And uh, we, knew, we knew about Rough River. Wanted and I had a houseboat down here for 19 years on the lake, and, and, and we knew how busy this place was in the summertime. And we never once ever thought about asking to see if we could have a roundup here. We just knew it was too busy, and they, they couldn't, couldn't have us. So in, back in 1987, we were heading in our motor home to, uh, I think it was Williamsburg, Virginia, to an Al-Anon seminar. It was one in and I and another couple, uh, John and Peg Chumley. And we got to talking about a roundup. And once again, I said something about Rough River. We can't do it down there. And uh, I said, they're so busy during the summer. And Peg said, well, why do you have to have this during the summer? I said, well, I never thought about, you know, having any other time. So when we got back, Peg called down here to Rough River and talked to a lady that we knew very well because we'd eaten here many, many times. Uh, her name was Alma. And she talked to Alma, and Alma said, come on down, we want to talk to you about this. And we come down and talked to Alma and set the date for November. And You know, it's, uh, God ha always has his hands in things that happen around the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. And uh, we didn't have any money, and we were concerned about getting this thing started. And uh, we knew we wanted, wanted it to be an AA and an Al-Anon convention. Uh, and to do that, we knew we, we wanted Saturday afternoons free, and we decided that uh, we would have four speakers. And when you have four speakers, you normally have to pay for four rooms for these speakers. And we thought about it. We said, why don't, why don't we get married couples come down here? So the, re the reason that we now have married couples and have had married couples is because we're thrifty, not because <laughs> it was a, a great idea we thought about it. So we, 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 had, we had married, cu married couples. And our first cu couples uh, was uh, Buck and Virginia Melton and Jim and Fran Dow 
Rasdale from uh, Bessemer, Alabama. And we, we called these people. We knew them very well. We said, we're starting to rough road around it. We'd like for you to talk. But there's a problem that we may have. We can take care of your room and meals once you get here, but we do not know if this thing's going to work, if we will be able to pay your travel expense. And both of these couples said, no problem. We want to be here, and they were here. So that's, that's how the thing got started on the married couples. And as far as I know, this is the only roundup where they, they have nothing but married couples talk. And that has worked out so well because it brings in the uh, family tra tradition of recovery in the family. And I think that's what this thing is all about. I, I don't think it's any need for me to go into a drunk log tonight. Uh, I guess we all know alcoholics here know how to drink, but uh, I, can, I can really tell you my drinking story in just a couple minutes. Uh, after I graduated from high school, uh, by the time I was 15 years old, I was always drinking pretty heavy. And in about 12 years of, of heavy drinking, uh, I lost a business, almost lost a family. Uh, I did lose one business and went into another business. And about 10 or 12 years later, I was just like the drunk that stumbled into the tavern one early one Monday morning. And he hollered at the bartender and said, my God, I had a bad weekend. I need a drink bad. He said, set me up three shots and three beers. And the old drunk, he was reaching, trying, fumbling, trying to get his billfold out of the pocket. And the bartender set him up. And man, he jumped up on that bar stool and he grabbed that shot of whiskey and dumped it down. He grabbed that beer and he just sucked it out of the bottle. It wasn't 30 seconds gone by and all three of them was gone. The bartender looked at him, he said, my God, man, you sure drink fast, don't you? He said, yeah, you'd drink fast, too, if you had what I got. He said, my God, man, what do you got? He said, about 75 cents. <laughs> and, and that's, that's pretty much what happened to me. Uh, you know, I heard uh, Bill talk about Kay's drinking. That reminded me of something that... Uh, one of us complained about my drinking at the time I was uh, all about, we, I got married when I was 20, but by the time we was about 22, 23 years old, she was really complaining about my drinking, and, and uh, she tried to set an example for me one time. We used to go to these church dances, especially on Saturday night, and of course I'd get drunk, and she'd drive me home, and she decided she was going to show me what was what what I was doing and she said she was gonna get drunk that night. We went to dance and she did she get she got drunk and we come home and and that night she got a double header. She got drunk and pregnant all in the same night. <laughs> yeah. I, I, there there she is, eighty years old and she's been drunk one time in her life. <laughs> I, I, I still don't understand that today. But you know uh if my drinking would only affected Juanita, it wouldn't have been so bad. You know, we had nine children whose children was involved in this. And I can remember when Juanita and I were dating, we talked many, many times about getting married, and, and she, she really didn't want to marry me. She, she, she knew how I drank. I caught her in a weak moment one night, and I gave her that engagement ring, and she gave it back to me. And she said, I told you 
I would never marry you the way you drink. And I looked at her that, that night in those big brown eyes of her, and I said, do you think after we're married and I have responsibility that I'll drink like this? And I guess one of you believed me, and I believed me too. I really thought responsibility would keep me from drinking. But we got married, and we had seven children, and one of was pregnant with the eighth child, and I was still drinking. And to me, that's one hell of a bunch of responsibility, I'll tell you. But these kids were really affected by this drinking. I can remember one of you talking to me after three or four of the kids come along. She began to talk to me about what this drinking was doing to these children. And I always come up with the same answer. I don't know what the hell she's complaining about. You know, the kids got shoes on their feet and there's food on the table. I'm the guy that's hurting today. I'm the guy that has to pull myself together and go out here and go to work and earn a few bucks so these kids got all these nice things. You know, when I look back tonight, I know what Ronnie was talking about when she talked about what this drinking was doing to these children. I can remember many times pulling in that driveway, and those two oldest daughters of mine come out that kitchen door and skip down the porch and down the sidewalk to meet Dad when he got off from work. Excuse me. I'd stumble up that, open that car door. I'd stumble up that driveway in a drunken stupor. I'd see those two little kids now. Stop. Look at their drunken father. See that smile drop off her face. Little, little heads would hang. They'd turn around, walk back into the house, get away from their drunken father. That hasn't happened to me in 50 years around this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have none, done, none anything, and my children had to hang their heads and be ashamed of me. And if, you know, if that's all I got out of the program, it would be worthwhile. But uh, one of you used to uh, tell me about these kids that they can't, can't bring friends in and all these things, and n none of this ever affected me. Uh, when I, after one end I got married, uh, I kind of got in a situation where I, I had a mother-in-law problem. I don't know if anyone here has ever had a mother-in-law problem or not, but God, I did. And, uh, well, my mother-in-law happened to be in the real estate business back then. She took me as a partner in that business. I kept this other job that I had. I've, I've been in sales all my life. and uh, After my mother-in-law went into business together, it was a very successful business for, oh, I don't know, three or four years. We would working out of my mother-in-law's house, and this will show you what a a nut I was when I drank. We was working at my mother-in-law's house, had a big front porch across her house, and had a big living room, went all the way across, and that was the office. And we talked one time about building a new office. And uh, that really was about all was said about it, and I don't know, maybe six months thereafter, my mother-in-law made a mistake. She took vacation. It's going to be gone for several months. And she no more than pulled out the driveway, and I decided, hell, now's a good time to build that office. She's gone. And we got out a bulldozer, pushed the front porch off my mother-in-law's house, and built an office while she was gone. And, and she got back. She was a little bit upset about that, I tell you. And one reason she was upset about it, it, it broke the company is what happened. And, and I was 25 years old, and uh, my mother-in-law came up with a brilliant idea shortly after that. And she was going to buy me out of this business. Well, man, that's going to work out good now, you know. Uh, one had always had a bad habit. I, I drank down at a little tavern about a half a mile from my office called Wolfer's Tavern. And she used to come in there all the time, and she was always wanting money from me. Uh, that hadn't changed much, but uh, she used to come in there, 
And I'd say, what do you want? She'd say she needed some money for, uh, for milk or bread, something. Didn't seem too important to me. But anyway, I'd give her $10, send her on the way. It wouldn't be but a week later. Hell, she'd be back again, you know. <laughs> and I, I used to say all the time, what did you do with that 10 I gave you last week, woman? So when this mother-in-law came up with this idea of buying me out, I thought, man, that's going to be okay, you know. I put that money in the bank, and if and when Juanita catches up with me, I can take care of her, you know. And So we went into my mother-in-law's office, his attorney's office one day. I was 25 years old when this took place. And uh, they had all the papers made out. I knew, I looked at them, I, I saw what they was. I grabbed the papers up and I signed them. I had business. And then they got the checkbook out. And that got my attention. They paid everybody off we owed. And then they wrote me out my check for my half of that business, what was left was $7.85. And that, that was about 55 years ago, and I tell you, even back then, you didn't get too drunk on $7.85. But you know the baffling thing about this? I never once ever thought what caused all this. It never crossed my mind that alcohol had anything to do with this. I knew what happened that business. I knew that day that mother-in-law stole that business from me, and, I, and I'd get even with her someday for that. And, and I drank for another 10 years with that on my mind. I still had this other job, and Wani was talking about what this drinking was doing to these kids. And to show you some of the idiot things I'd done with, with these children, uh, I used to come home at night at 10 30, 11 o'clock. Wani had these kids put to bed. God, that upset me. How can you put my kids to bed before I got to kiss them goodnight? I used to get these kids out of bed and pop them popcorn, turn that idiot box on, open some Cokes. Open me a couple of beers, drink them, and I sit down and pass out, and then wanted to get up and put these kids back to bed again. I remember one time shortly before I come in, I was down at the tavern, and some drunk come in there with a bunch of turtles. This tavern I drank in had a big kitchen in behind the bar, and we kind of lived back there. And uh, We cooked up this whole batch of turtle soup that day. About 11.30 at night, I got to thinking about my six kids. I didn't know if one had fed them that day or not. I uh, thought, I, I better take some soup home. These kids might be hungry. It was about 11.30 at night, and I got home, and uh, I got these kids out of bed. I set them down at that kitchen table, and I put that soup on the stove, and I heated it up, and I poured that soup out, and I said, now eat. And they didn't want to eat that soup that night. And one reason they didn't want to eat that soup, they, we had a little turtle aquarium in our living room, and the, ki the kids thought I'd cook their turtles. But... I was so drunk, I said, you are going to eat it, it's good for you. And I got to slapping the two oldest kids around, and I made them eat that soup, and they got sick and threw up, and oh God, it was a mess that night. And you know, when I come to the next day, alcohol never once ever allowed me to think about what I had done. Alcohol always told me things were different. It told me that next morning it was one of his fault. If she hadn't been out in that kitchen and told the kids they didn't have to eat that soup, they would have eaten it and everything would have been fine. That's a big lie. Wani was not even out in the kitchen that night. She stayed back in the bedroom. That, that's what alcohol done to me. I can remember this mother-in-law. She used to come over many, many times on the weekend to pick up her grandchildren. And she loved to do things for her grandchildren. And I think one reason I hated my mother-in-law so bitterly 
because she was doing the very things for my children I wanted to do, but I could never get around to doing it, and I resented the hell out of her. But she, I used to come in sometime on Friday, she'd be over gathering up her grandchildren, in a drunken rage, I'd run her out of the house and tell her to get the hell out. Who do you think you are taking my children out of this house without my permission? I wonder what these kids must have thought when they saw their drunken father run their grandmother out of the house. And you know, when I'd come to the next morning, I never once ever thought about what I, I had done. I always believed it was someone else's fault. You know, wanted to begin to talk about divorce around our house. I, I don't know, did y'all ever talk about divorce around your house? Uh, hell, we talked about divorce like everybody else talks about the weather, you know. Uh, we discussed it every once in a while, and, uh, and I'd always say, what do you want from me? I want you to quit drinking. And I would for a week or ten days, and then we kissed and made up, and uh, you know, we've done a lot of making up. We got nine children. Uh, and she got real serious one time about this divorce thing, and I lived in Shavia, a little bitty old burg right outside Louisville there, and, uh, and I, I knew the mayor and the deputy, everybody there. And uh, Anyway, he, one Friday night, I got a knock on the door. I happened to be home and uh, opened the door, and there was a deputy sheriff serving me these papers. And uh, I didn't know at first what they were, and I, I grabbed them and looked at them as divorce papers. And I was smart and I was drunk. I'd have ripped them in half and gave them back to him. I said, I don't want these damn things. He said, Bob, you better read them tomorrow you sober up. The judge has already signed them. And I read them the next day, and to this day I cannot remember how much alimony Juanita wanted, wanted. But I got down to the paragraph where it said child support. Boy, I read that one. <laughs> she wanted $40 a week for each child that we had. And there's no way in God's world I could pay $240 a week child support, pay her alimony, and drink. That's impossible. I'd done the obvious thing being a Catholic. I went down to the priest's house and talked to Father what I should do with this nutty woman I'm living with. And uh, I was telling Father I'm working two jobs and all these things. And, and Father agreed with me. He really got on my side. And uh, even I was sitting down there having a highball together. And uh, he had about the same problem I had. And uh, anyway, he called Juanita that day. said, get down here. I want to, I want to talk to you. I thought, man, this is going to work out now. I've got Father on my side. Well, you know, when Juanita got down there, she told Father a little different story than what I'd been telling him. And this is one time in my life I really wanted to make a change. I knew I was doing things I shouldn't be doing. I was going to places I shouldn't be going to. And I knew I was with, with some people I shouldn't be with. I wasn't stupid. I knew that. And I really wanted to make a change, and I really wanted to stop drinking. I was a whole lot like the guy that moved down here to Louisville from Cincinnati. He and his wife come down, and the first thing he did, he rented an apartment right next door to this tavern. And he run over to the tavern that first night, and he run in there, and hollered for the bartender, and said, give me th three shots and three beers. He sat down, he threw the money up on the bar, and he drank them, took his time, jumped up, and out the door he went. The bartender thought about it, and he said, Man, it's kind of strange the way this guy drinks. I really don't know why that's happening. The next night, same thing. He was back again, three shots and three beers. And the bartender wanted to question about it. And he thought, well, he's not causing any trouble. He's, he's paying this bill. I better not say anything to him. That afternoon, 
come back in, same thing, three shots and three beers, and he was back that night again. And this went on for three months. Finally, the guy come in one night and said, bartender, give me two shots and two beers. Uh, he couldn't stand this any longer. He had to question. I said, look, you've been coming here for months now, ordering three shots and three beers. Tonight it's two shots and two beers. What, what's going on while you drink like this? He said, oh, he said, it's uh, really nothing to it. He said, when I left Cincinnati, I, I drank up there all the time with my two brothers. We always bought around from one another, and we, we had three shots and three beers. And uh, before I left uh, Cincinnati, we just kind of made a pact that when, whenever we uh, were having a drink, we'd have a drink for one another. Barter said, oh, my God, what happened? One of your brothers died? He said, oh, no, 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 nothing like that. He said, my wife had been complaining about how much I drink, and I took a long look at it, and I decided that I was going to quit drinking. <laughs> and and that's, that's pretty much the way I was. I would have loved to have found a way that I could have stopped drinking and kept drinking. But one uh, of got me to sign that pledge. I don't know if there's the one there in this room tonight that's ever been dry on the pledge or not. But if you haven't, you don't have to be. Please stay here in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous and do it the easy and the comfortable way. I thought all it was to sign the pl a pledge. You put the plug in the jug, you don't drink. It's that simple. wasn't that simple for this alcoholic because I wanted to drink every day. And I couldn't drink because I'd signed that pledge. I lasted six months on that pledge. And one of you said many, many times in Algon, Thank God that I did take that drink because it relieved all that pressure we was living under in that house. That's all it was, was a house that one in nine these six kids existed in. The program of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon has changed that house into a home today. And it's a thriving home with kids running in and out and gr grandkids and now great-grandkids. It's, 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 uh, being sober is a great, great deal. I had lasted six months and I took that drink and uh, a lot of things began to happen. It was about this time that my brother plays an important part in my being here. My brother lived on Skid Row in Louisville for a number of years, and he walked into the central office in Louisville and found help about with his disease of alcoholism. Uh, Norman and I were always very, very close. We were big fishing buddies together before drinking become a problem in his life. And uh, Norman began to stop by and talk with Juanita at home. And Juanita began to talk to Norman about my drinking. And uh, Juanita tried to get Norman to take me to AA. And he said, it, it doesn't work that way. He said, I, I, I can't take Bob to AA. He'll have to call and ask for help. Juanita said, hell, he'll die first. And Norman said, well, he may have to die. And my brother was sober eight months, and I was strict in AA. And I don't think it makes any difference why you were here. I think the important thing is that you are here. I was strict into my first AA meeting. My brother was sober eight months, and he and I was going on a fishing trip. And, and you you got to be pretty rum-dumb to fall for what I'm going to tell you. Uh, my, Norman, as I said, Norman was sober eight months, and we'd planned this fishing trip. And one of said, you're going down there with Norman, and you're going to be drinking, and you're going to cause him to start drinking. I said, no, I do love my brother. I said, I've already been out and talked with Norman. And I told him, and I may drink a beer or two while we're down there, 
but he assured me it was not bother him long as he didn't drink it. He says, yeah, he told you that. He said, but if you really love Norman, what you ought to do is go in one of those AA meetings with him, and you could find out something about alcoholism, and you could probably help Norman stay sober. <laughs> I thought about it for a few minutes. I thought, well, hell, I wouldn't mind going going to help him. <laughs> and she said, well, you have to call him. So I called my brother and said, can I go to one of these meetings with you? Man, he was delighted. He thought I wanted help. And God, I will never forget that f first meeting that we went to. We rode all the way out to Vine Grove, Kentucky, the meeting, about 30 miles from Louisville. And these guys that I was with, and Norman, they were, I don't know what they were talking about and cared less what they were talking about. We got out there that night, and they did not have a speaker that night. They played a tape of some southeastern speaker. It wouldn't have meant anything to me that night if Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob would have both been at the meeting that night. I was not interested in AA. I got back that night, and Wanda had the coffee pot on. She'd baked the cake, and she thought I'd been to AA and been cured. And I walked in the door that night, and I walked up to her, and I shook my finger in her face, and I said, you will never, ever take another night out of my life. My brother's been sober eight months. Not a thing I can do to help him. I left, and I went out and got. She called Norman the next day and said, Bob didn't get a whole lot out of that meeting last night, but he wants to go Friday night. <laughs> uh, I didn't know I wanted to go Friday night. But she still had that divorce hanging on my head. So I, I agreed to go to AA on Friday night. Juanita went with us, and she was introduced to the program Valinon. And thank God for the program of Al Anon. I think it's a very help that one of you found in the program of Al Anon was the very things that got at me in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I was 28 years old when I made that first AA meeting. If anyone would have told me what was going to happen in the next two and a half years, I'd have told you you're nuts. Anyone would have told me, well, Bob, you're going to lose that house, you're going to lose the automobiles, you're going to lose that business. You're going to lose that money you got in the bank. You're going to lose that other that first job that I had 11 years with that company. And you're going to wind up with a shotgun in your hand, almost killing your family. You know what I would have said? Hell, you're nuts. I wouldn't let any one of these things happen. But they all did happen. They all did happen in a two-and-a-half-year period. The only thing I've done right in the next two-and-a-half years is I kept going to AA. I made a lot of AA meetings drinking. I don't say it's the right thing to do, but if you had to do it, I understand it, because I've been there. And I'll never forget a gal by the name of Little Nylon at the Pleasant Ridge group that Wally and I went to, and it's the very same room that the Crumbs Lane group meets in now, and I'm a member in good standing at that group. And 52 years ago, I was in that very same room drinking with Little Nylon telling me after the meeting, not saying, Bob, you know you're drinking, don't come back to AA then. I can remember her putting her arms around me and hugging me and holding me. She was saying, Bob, you have faith. Keep coming back. We need you here. We want you here. Please come back. Thank God for gals like Lil. She just kept encouraging me and telling me to come back. I know with the attitude that I had, if Lil would have once ever said, Bob, you know you're drinking. You come on back to A when you want to, we really want to sober up. I think you know what I would have done. 
As I said, the only thing I'd done right is I kept going to meetings. I got on the outskirts of AA. There's the middle of AA, and there's on, on the edges of AA. I met all the guys that was running in and out of AA, back and forth. And I heard, I heard this explained from a speaker about two years ago. He talked about, he said he has never, ever, ever in his, <coughs> in his life ever heard of anyone falling off the middle of a flat roof. And I compared that, you know, with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't think I have ever, ever heard of anyone taking a drink that's staying in the middle of AA. But you know, you get on the outer edges of it, and you can fall off. I know, because that's what I've done for two and a half. Uh, we lost, lost that house. We lost that money in the bank. I lost that job, and to me that was chronic alcoholism. I was around AA for, oh, probably about a, about a year and a half, but uh, before I tell you about that job, I want to tell you about what, a, what an idiot I was around AA. You know, as I said, you get on the outskirts of, of AA, you can get a lot of information, a lot of good information, like if, if you drink vodka, they can't smell it. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know that, you know. I learned that on the edges of AA, and I started drinking vodka, and uh, I'd drink vodka all day, and I'd pull up to meetings such as this, you know, I'd reach under that seat, grab that bottle, take a couple chugs off of it, you know, and I'd reach over, and I'd get me a whole pack of Clorettes, and I'd dump the whole pack in. I didn't want to take a chance whether you could smell it or not. And my first sponsor, Bill Wallace, used to say to me all the time, and I come through that door, and you saw that green foam run on my mouth. <laughs> you knew what kind of shape I was in. And, and, and that's the way I was for two and a half years around this program. I had no idea that anyone knew that I was drinking. But that first job that I had, my boss's brother was in AA. And he called me one Friday night. I, I, I traveled all down through eastern Kentucky, through Hazard and Harlan, and done a lot of drinking down in there. But... And they were looking for me, and they couldn't find me for three or four weeks. And uh, he caught me at home. My boss's brother, who was in AA, called caught me home one Friday night. And he told me I'd been fired that day. My God, I, I, I need this job bad. He said, I've already lost that business, and uh, I need this job bad. And George said, let, let, me, let me talk to my brother, see if there's anything I can do for you, Bob. It wasn't 15 minutes, but it seemed like 15 days before George called me back. He said, Bob, I've got this all straightened out for you. You come on into work Monday morning, and you be sober. I said, George, thank you so much. God, I need this job. And I promise you tonight, I will never, ever take another drink. George should have known I couldn't keep that promise. Never is a long time. Thank God we have one day at a time in this program. But I didn't drink anything. I rest of Friday night, Saturday or Sunday, I didn't drink. I was too scared to drink. I got, got up Monday morning and got dressed and started in the office. I got about halfway in there and I got to thinking. Thinking's bad for me, I'll tell you. I got to think about what that boss was going to say. I knew what he was going to say. I could have written the script out for him. Anyway, I stopped in and I started drinking and I don't know how much I drank that day. But later that day, I walked into that office, 
I walked up to my boss's desk. I took the keys to the office out of my pocket. I threw them on his desk, and I told him, you keep your damn job. I don't need it. And I turned around and walked out. This man had not opened his mouth. And to me, that is chronic alcoholism. When I was dry that Friday, I was concerned about my responsibility as a husband and a father. And I put a little alcohol in my system. I was no longer concerned about that responsibility. We lost that house. My mother-in-law sold that house for me. And by this time, one it was already an Al-Anon. And that's a bad deal if you're going to keep drinking. Uh, <laughs> She sold that house, and, and we had a little bit of equity in that house. And after we sold that house, the first thing we did, we went, we went to the bank, put that money in the bank. I went to the tavern, wanted and went back to the bank. And uh, thank God that she did, because I'd have drank it all up in a little bit. But we, lo we lost the automobiles. We lost the respect for one another. I continue with this drinking been around about two and a half years and we moved in with my mother-in-law and that, that didn't go very well hell she got sicker in a month living with me and wanted it did in 15 years you know but uh, once again things were closing in and I went down to Cumberland Lake uh, when things get tough I go fishing I got out of there and, and I, I think one is wrong in, in her statement sometime. She said I was gone three or four weeks. I, I don't think I could stay away from them three or four weeks. She, I, I come back, I, I thought I was gone three or four days. <laughs> and uh, I come back to my mother-in-law's house. It, was, it happened to be on a Friday morning. And uh, I couldn't get in. So I hollered for one in. I said, there's something wrong. My key don't work. She said uh, her mother had had the locks changed. I said, well, I need a key. She said, you don't get a key. I said, why don't I get a key? I said, what do you want from me, woman? She said, I want you to stop drinking. And I told her that morning, Juanita, I would rather be dead and not be able to drink. I left that morning. I went over to Wolfer's Tavern. I drank beer that entire day. That's the reason I consider myself a beer alcoholic. I drank most beer most of the time until I got into A and got on that vodka. But my last drunk was a beer drunk. I drank beer that entire day, and about 7.30 at night, I was so drunk, I decided that they cannot lock me out of my house. Who the hell do they think they are? So I went back over. My key still didn't fit 7.30 at night either. So I, I knocked that door down to get in. And I can vaguely remember my mother-in-law giving me one more change. I can remember her saying, Bob, if you don't get off my property, I'm going to call the police and have you arrested. I said, that's a fine thing to do, have your son-in-law arrested. Who's going to feed these seven kids? And she let me know who had been feeding them, I'll tell you. And she called the police on me that night, and I was so drunk, I decided I'm going to show them. I went down to the basement. I got my shotgun. It's a 12-gauge Browning automatic. And I remember picking up two full boxes of shells, and I don't know what I was going to do with two boxes of shells. But I remember putting three shells in that gun, and I hear that chamber slamming down when I pushed that button. The next thing, I stumbled up that stairway, waving that gun around, 
I can vaguely remember kids running and screaming to get away from their drunken maniac father. And it's a miracle that gun didn't go off that night. It's a miracle my mother-in-law and I didn't come face to face that night. She'd gone into her bedroom to get her gun. Hell, she was going to get rid of the problem that night. And it was about this time that the police had arrived. And I stumbled up the stairway. I went up into the attic. It was a warm November night. Nobody up there bothering me. And I'm sure every alcoholic in this room has felt this way. I knew what the problem was. People wasn't drinking. People caused me problems. And the next thing I vaguely remember is somebody in a blue uniform. And one of them said I told that policeman I was going to blow his head off with that shotgun. And I normally didn't talk to policemen that way. And it's a miracle that gun didn't go off that night when these kids were running and screaming to get away from me. And I don't think I had any intentions of really shooting anyone or killing anyone. But I was so upset that I was put out of that house and I was going to show them they couldn't treat me that way. And it's a miracle that gun didn't go off that night. Because I was just waving it around, a drunken, raving maniac. And a lot of miracles took place that night. This happened about 7.30. At Pleasant Ridge Group that Juan and I had been to a lot of times was an 8.30 meeting. Juan was getting dressed to go to that meeting that night. She called over at that church that night. Telephone's locked up. You can't get to that telephone over there. But that night, the women in the sewing circle was meeting. And they needed a place to, for Al-Anon to meet. And the priest come over and opened his office so Al-Anon would have a place to meet that night. And they were able to answer that phone. And one of them made that call for me. She called AA for me. They didn't say put Bob on the phone. She asked for Norman, my brother, who was at that meeting. That wasn't, I guess, 10 minutes. There was four members of Alcoholics Anonymous there. And one of these members was a priest. And I didn't know this had happened. We live on a corner lot with a driveway going all the way around. And they had our whole house surrounded with police cars and searchlights on the building and sirens going out. I don't know what all was going on and cared less. And anyhow, this happened some 50 years ago. And they talked these police into leaving. I don't know how they had done that. You know, if this would happen today, the right squad, right squad would have blown me away. But my brother come up, and Bill got me to give up the gun. It took the other two members to get my mother's gun. The priest went out, and he got rid of the police, and they took me out that night, began to pour a little coffee down me, and I began to come to just a little bit. <coughs> they convinced me that night, I stayed out on the street, I was going to get arrested. And I'd been arrested before, and I'd, <coughs> and I'd never been in a jail that I really liked. So uh, <coughs> I agreed to go with them, and then they took me out to Our Lady Peace Hospital. And they were just starting to have a detox unit there. And uh, I decided I wouldn't even go to sleep that night, but they put, gave me a shot and put me to sleep. And I come to, come to the next morning. And I thought I was in some hotel. I didn't know where I was. Anyway, I got out of my room, and I got dressed, and I went down to the end of the hall. I was going to check out, and those doors are locked, no damn doorknobs on them. And I realized where I was. And I swore that morning, I'll get even with these guys if the last thing I do, put me in here. 
But God works in strange ways in this program, though. A lot of AA people come to that hospital to see me. And to show you I wasn't looking for help, I sat in the hospital at night in the dark. I would not burn their lights. And you know, with an attitude like that, you ought to die drunk. But I can remember Bill, my first sponsor, coming in. He flipped them lights on, and he had a few choice words to say to me I can't repeat in this podium. But a lot of AA people come to that hospital to see me. And I knew what they wanted to hear. I'd been around two and a half years. I say around. I was not in AA. I was just around it. But I knew what they wanted to hear, and I told them what they wanted to hear. But you know what I really thought deep down in my heart? Just get the hell out of here and leave me alone. I don't need your help. I can do this. And in three days, they turned me loose. I told the guys what, the, what he could do with his books. He called Juanita one afternoon and said, I'm afraid your husband will whole, die a hopeless drunk. He doesn't want any help. Well, thank God the people in AA don't believe that. And when they turned me loose in three days, I got to thinking, what happened to my three drinking buddies? One of these guys owned this tavern. The other guy was in the real estate business. Another was a, a roofing contractor. And these three men were more important to me in my drinking, when I was drinking than my family was. And they did not come to that hospital to see me. And that got me to thinking, why do these eight people care? They really do care about you. They come to the hospitals. And I went in that day because my drinking buddies did not come. You know, if they'd have come to the hospital to see me, it would have given me the encouragement that I needed to take another drink. And I can do that. There's no problem at all. But, you know, I don't know if I got another recovery or not. And that's terribly important to me. It was my three drinking buddies that woke me up. And I went and talked to my sponsor that day, and Bill told me about, a lot about the program of alcoholism that day. He told me about honesty and gratitude and open-mindedness, willingness, action. He told me about a higher power that he called God. He said, Bob, look over the last two and a half years, and you've been running the show. And I looked back, and it was a very pretty picture. Bill said, Bob, won't you try it our way for six weeks? See if you can't find something. He said, if you don't like it, they'll still be selling that stuff. I think that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get an AA, get this thing straightened out, get that mother-in-law off my back, get one of straightened out, get back in the family, and then I'm going to go back to that successful drinking that I've been doing. That was on the 9th of November, 1962. I've not had a drink of alcohol since then. It's just been a tremendous journey. I can remember in the, got a little time yet, in the early days of AA, one uh, and I, I don't know what other people thought, but we thought, or I thought I was Mr. AA and she was Miss Allen I. Uh, we used to go to meetings and, hell, we was always fighting over money. Man, we'd, uh, we used to go to a meeting and we'd be fighting all the way to the damn meeting about money, about money she was spending and I wasn't making and I, you know, these things and get in that meeting and save everybody while we were there and uh, leave after the meeting and pick right up and go right on, you know. And uh, but you know, these these children that was involved in this thing got in Alateen right away. And I can remember my must have been my third oldest daughter, fourth oldest daughter. I come home one night. I'd been sober about probably ten years, maybe at this time. And I don't know why they didn't have supper ready or something. And and uh, I got to fussing and complaining. I said. Man, I've got these phone calls. I've got to call these three guys, and I've got to pick this guy up, and i got this to do, and why don't you don't have supper ready? 
And that daughter said to me, he said, Dad, you've been raising hell here for 10 minutes. You could have done called these three guys if you'd just went and done it and had that done. And that's, that's what was brought into our home, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon, and al It has been a tremendous journey. One and I, we have uh, nine children. All the kids are doing fine. We've got one that's been out there paddling around in the pond, but uh, she, she's doing good right now. I don't know how long it's going to last, but she's doing good right now. In fact, she's back in the business working. Uh, I'm, I'm retired, and the kids are running the business, and uh, our brother and sisters hired her back. I, uh, we, I fired her years ago, but uh, they hired her back, and uh, uh, that's okay. She's, she's doing okay, and uh, uh, her son, my grandson, uh, has had a problem, and he's doing good now, so th th things are, are really good there. I've got a a son who come to AA and now been, doesn't go any longer. He's been sober 10 or 12 years. I got a daughter done the same thing. Been sober almost 20 years. So so things are good. But we got we got 18 grandchildren, three great grandchildren, and uh, I want to tell you about uh, these kids. Uh, you know I got I never got the opportunity to see my children born in this world. I don't think you guys ever got to see a baby born in this world or not, but if you haven't, if you ever get the opportunity, please take advantage of it. Back when Juanita was having, Juanita and I was having children, they did not allow the father back in the delivery room. In fact, when two of my kids were born, they didn't allow me in the hospital. I was so drunk. But I, I, I got to see a grandson born in this world. And I didn't know what a woman went through to have a baby. You know what I thought about having a baby when I was drinking? Wanted was going to be in that hospital for three or four days, and I could do what the hell I wanted to do. That's what I thought about having a child. You know, that's a that's a shame to really have to say that. But that that's what alcohol done to me. But I got to see his grandson born in this world, and I said I don't know what a woman went through. I just thought hell, he went back and had a baby, and three or four days they were home. But I saw that baby crowned. I saw the doctor grab him. I thought at first he missed him, but he, he had him. It wasn't, wasn't just a few minutes they had that boy cleaned up. We got to hold that boy in our arms. You don't get any closer to God. I've got an adopted granddaughter. Our second oldest daughter never married. A very wealthy woman today. and uh, about, 18, about 19 years ago, Pam come out the house, talked to mom and dad, and sat down and talked to us. Told us uh, she wanted to go to Paraguay and adopt this Ronnie Indian baby. And I thought about it for a minute. I, what I really thought was hell get married and do it like one and I had done it, you know, but she didn't want any part of that. And she needed our signature to do this because she was a single mother. And she got Juanita to go with her. They were going to Paraguay to pick up this five-month-old Ronnie Indian baby. And uh, they said they'd be back in 10 days to two weeks. And they got over there, and they got there at the wrong time. They happened to get there at the time that the rumor got out that these American women were coming over and adopting these babies and bringing them back to the States for their organs. And they had a tough time getting out of Paraguay. And about, I don't know, it was six or seven weeks later, they got back. And I got to meet Emily, this five-month-old baby.
black hair, black eyes, dark skin, you know, just a beautiful, beautiful young girl. And when Emily was about, oh, I guess 18 months old, we happened to be at a convention up in Washington, D.C., in our motor home. Juanita and I and Pam and Emily was there, and we went to the convention, and after the convention, we went shopping. And uh, Emily messed in her diapers, what happened. And Pam said, she's going to take her back to the motor home. I said, no, you're not either. I'm going to do this. You let me do this. I took Emily back to the motor home and cleaned her up, and we didn't go back shopping. We laid on the couch, and she put her arms around me, and I put my arms around her. And we lay there, and we bonded that day. And you know, I never got the opportunity to bond with any of my nine children. I was too drunk when most of them was born. When the last two was born, I was sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I was too busy going to meetings, too busy working, trying to regain everything I'd thrown away to bond with my children. You know, God never takes anything away from us. He don't always have something. And Emily, uh, Emily and I are awful close. She's now almost 19 years old. And uh, I hate to see her grow up. Them boys are beginning to look at her, you know. Uh, and she's mine. <laughs> God has been so good to us. Sober is a good deal. I want to talk just a little bit about Spiatamudu. And if I don't have it, I'm good anyway. <laughs> uh, sponsorship is so important. I was very fortunate when I first sobered up in the program of AA. I had a sponsor, his name was Bill Wallace. And uh, Bill grabbed me by the hand and walked with me through this program. He showed me the program. Bill never once ever got behind me and pushed me anywhere I didn't want to go. He never got in front of me and pulled me anywhere I didn't want to go. Bill just took my hand and walked with me through this program. And Bill was my sponsor for 21 years before he died. And he, I remember the day Bill was dying. I went into the hospital to see Bill. Bill told me, he said, Bob, I'm dying. I know that. He said, I want you to promise me one thing. When I'm gone, you're going to get you another sponsor. And I promised Bill that day I would get another sponsor. And I, I tried to tell Bill that day how important he was in my life. And you know what he said? He turned that situation around. And he told me how important I was in his life. I didn't know how important a sponsor he was to a sponsor. All I ever done was share my problems with Bill. And Bill told me that day, Bob, so many times you come in to tell me about your problems, and you've allowed me to talk back with you and tell you about my problems. So he made me promise that I would get another sponsor. Bill died on, and we buried him on the 9th of November, 1984, on my birthday. And I went, went around the groups. Bill was a little short guy. Bill was hip. Bill was fat. Big, Bill had a big face, big red nose, and he still, Bill looks the drunk after 38 years sobriety. <laughs> and, and I went around the groups looking for someone just like Bill, and I couldn't find anyone. And I went six months without a sponsor. Don't advise that for anyone, because my whole life got out of step. My life did. I thought your life was out of step six months. And y'all weren't listening to me and doing the things I thought. But it was me that was out of step. And we happened to be down 
in a little town down in Georgia, I think it was, and I run into my next sponsor. God had been sober seven or eight years, Tom. I knew Tom real well. His wife is here at the meeting tonight, Sonny. And I asked Tom to be my sponsor. I, I didn't need anybody with 30, 21 years sobriety, 38 years sobriety. All I needed someone on a one-to-one basis I could talk with. And I asked Tom to be my sponsor. And Tom and I have shared together for some 28 years. And Tom passed away about a month ago. And Tom said the same thing to me. He knew he, knew he was dying. He asked me about it. I told him, Tom, that I would get a sponsor. And I went about three weeks without a sponsor. So I've got me a new sponsor that I can share with. And you'd think with a guy with 50 years sobriety doesn't have any problems. Don't, don't kid yourself. Uh, I, I don't have any problems when everything goes my way. I mean, it's just, man, it, it's, it's just hunky-dory and everything's good. But you know, it doesn't happen that way every day. I've, I remember my first sponsor, Bill. Something he asked me to do, and I've done it. And I'm okay. Bill asked me to pray every day. He asked me to start my day with some meditation and ask God to help me stay away at my first today. And I have not missed a day in 50 years in one day in the morning, asking God to help me through that day without a drink. And I believe if we're sincere and we ask God, he will take care of us. And Bill further asked me every night to thank God for what he's given me. I do that every night, but some, some nights I'm not too good with it. It hadn't been a good day. I'm very fortunate to, I guess, to have 50 years. I don't know. It's not an accomplishment, really. It's a way of living one day at a time. I, I really don't have anything else to say. I just, I wish uh, there was some words of wisdom I, I could. I, Bill, my first sponsor, told me when I talked, he said, there is always one person in that room that needs to hear what you say. I don't know what I've said. I have no idea. Only you know that. I can only hope what I said in the life that I've lived, that the life that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has given me, that it reflects on you, that you have one more day. Thank you.